This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. So guys, Shane's been gone for a week and I think I know why. Oh. I think the New York Times took out a bounty on him. What? Too many like, scoops. Got to put an end to it. Come on, even the New York Times could not afford the bounty it would take to bring in Shane Harris. I don't know. I mean, it happened and then he disappeared and he just was returned. I am reporting to you from a very nice cell in the Times building in New York. In the basement. And what kind of shape are you in? What what what's your bruise situation like, Shane? I'm fine. They were very nice to me. They fed me very well and let me go if I promise to stop reporting. I'm blinking SOS in Morse code. The New York Times is a very nice place to stay for a week. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for having me in your basement apartment. Thank you. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the Bounty Hunter edition. I'm Shane Harris. Hunted Bounty. Charlie Savage did not put a bounty on me. Um, my friends at the New York Times were very considerate to wait until the Friday night, the day before I came home from my vacation, to put a nice little cap on my time away. They let you Excellent. relax just enough and then just you enough. back in. Just enough. You know, I got to sit there by a pool making phone calls. Yeah, it was it was a lovely way to spend. But I did have a lovely vacation, I want to say, uh, up until that point. And, you know, I have to say, Shane, I don't like it when you go away because hosting rational security is hard. Well, I mean, you know, it, it takes some getting used to, Ben. Practice makes perfect. You are, you know, you are a, a budding talk show host yourself with uh, in lieu of fun. <laughs> and, you know, and you are a moderator par excellence on Lawfare. It's just a different skill set. That's all. It's different because you have to manage multiple people and they're trying to be funny. And it, it's just complicated. I don't know. Well, I don't know. There's a lot of managing going on. That's for sure. But I'm very happy to be back here now. I am uh, back in the Bloomingdale remote studio with my good friends ben wittis tamark hoffman wittis and susan hennessy hi everybody hi Shane. we're so glad you're back i missed you guys too i really did uh and we have a hell of a podcast to get started with because there is a lot of news to talk about so on the podcast this week trump's aides say they never briefed him about a russian plot to kill u.s forces in afghanistan former aides say the president has been delusional in his dealing with foreign leaders and as the coronavirus continues spreading, some federal workers are being furloughed. Let us start with the big story of the week, big story of the month, maybe the first like, you know, big, not directly Corona. Well, I guess it's the first big national security story, maybe since we've been into coronavirus. Uh, but this is something that's kind of taking us straight back in some ways uh, to 2016. Now we learn about a Russian plot to interfere and undermine U.S. interests yet again, this time in Afghanistan. Uh, the New York, aforementioned New York Times, my lovely hosts, uh, first broke this story. We've reported a lot about it on the Post and at the Journal. By now, I think readers are pro or listeners are probably pretty well up to speed on this. But the latest development, and Susan, I want to go to you on this, uh, is that the National Security Advisor, uh, Robert O'Brien, has now come out and I think stated pretty clearly after first a fairly fuzzy statement. Uh, and Secretary Pompeo has backed this up, actually, in a press conference today, Wednesday, um, that in fact, this intelligence was not shared, at least verbally, with the president. We know it was in his PDB. 
which he usually does not read. Uh, but this was not called out for him, as his briefers will customarily do when they want to bring his attention to something. Uh, but it certainly was something that was known to senior officials, uh, uh, whether Mr. O'Brien himself, what he knew about at the time, open question. But I kind of want to focus on him to start because in an administration, it seems to me, in which you know, there is a, a challenge, let us say, with bringing information to the president's attention. And to be clear, every administration is busy, but in this particular one, this president does not like to hear a lot in his brief, particularly when it's bad news about Russia. It falls to the national security advisor to kind of be the traffic cop and the coordinator. Uh, and it strikes me here that particularly since this information was being discussed at the NSC level back in March, this very much seems to fall within O'Brien's wheelhouse. And I think you know, I'm curious what questions it raises for you about how he's doing his job. Yeah, so I'm not quite prepared to take O'Brien at his word yet, in part because we actually do have a number of conflicting reports, whether or not the president himself was, in fact, briefed. So we have O'Brien saying, uh, sort of throwing the uh, career CIA briefer under the bus by saying, you know, she decided not to brief him. And I agree with that decision, right? Sort of a, a not my fault. Um, the AP uh, is reporting that John Bolton has told people that he personally briefed briefed the president as early as March 2019 on the threat. We know that it was included in a February 27, 2020 PDB. And so even if you can say, well, Donald Trump doesn't, uh, he doesn't read his PDB. And so that's how you sort of square the circle of him saying he wasn't briefed when it was included. Remember, the White House denial was that neither the president nor the vice president had been briefed. Uh, and reportedly, Mike Pence does read his PDB. So I think we're still in sort of the, uh, the context context of not quite knowing who to believe. Um, that said, you know, the story is sort of starting to take shape. And I, I think we, it's sort of worth recapping the state of the story as we understand it, which is that at this point, it's clear that uh, there is intelligence supporting that the Russians offered bounties for killing coalition troops, uh, including Americans uh, in Afghanistan, uh, that that intelligence came not just from interrogations uh, potentially conducted by the CIA uh, or maybe uh, DOD-affiliated officials, um, but also that there is signals intelligence uh, regarding GRU money transfers, so the actual money itself, how it's moved, um, that the White House has known and sort of put quotation marks around the White House, what part of the White House, since early 2019. Um, and so the question now is sort of, it's twofold, and I think, I think you're right to focus on O'Brien. One is, what does this story mean if all of these pieces are true, and actually O'Brien's telling the truth and Donald Trump wasn't orally briefed on it. I think there are lots and lots of ramifications there. Namely, why were you not sharing this intelligence with the president? And we can come up with some pretty disturbing reasons why his own national security staff uh, would choose not to, not to share this with him, uh, including that now that the president has been briefed, he's tweeted that it's a hoax. Um, you know, so if, if he is telling the truth, uh, that's sort of problematic. Um, and if he's not telling the truth, and in fact, uh, this this intelligence has gone all the way up to the top. It's been known in some form uh, for at least a year. It's been being debated within the National Security Council about how to respond at least since March of this year. Then we have serious questions about why has it taken this long? Why did it take this long to share this information with coalition partners and allies? Why have we still not seen a response? Um, and there's sort of this sub story of the National Security staff kind of trying to cover for themselves in why Donald Trump wouldn't have been briefed by attempting to use an alleged disagreement between NSA and CIA on sort of the confidence levels to attach to various pieces of intelligence um, to act as though there was a real question about whether or not this happened at all. So again, sort of this really, really misleading, manipulative presentation of, uh, of intelligence information that uh, is being used to essentially excuse the president and his administration's incompetence and also has provided an opening for Donald Trump to pick up the Russian narrative. This is all a hoax. It never happened in the first place, making it even less likely that the United States is going to substantively respond. Cammie. So I, I think Susan laid out all of the issues very well in terms of what we know and what we don't know. But I have to say from a policy perspective, 
the question of whether you know somebody and whoever it is decided to share this with the president or not whether the president knew at a given point or not seems to me to dodge the fundamental issue which is that the national security uh, infrastructure of the government knew of this threat and was preparing responses for the president and the options did not get in front of the president and nothing was done to respond to this threat. I mean, first of all, the threat itself is not that surprising. If you think it's outrageous that the Russians uh, were paying bounties for attacks on American soldiers, just remember that you know the CIA gave weapons to Afghans to kill Russian soldiers. And also, this is Putin. This is a guy who sent operatives abroad to England to um, poison a dissident and endanger an entire town. Like This is not a shock. And as long as we have troops in the field, those troops face all kinds of threat and there's all kinds of threat monitoring. So to me, the question of whether, you know, people who knew about this decided not to take it to the president is not the issue. The issue is that we have no evidence that there was any priority given to pushing back on the Russians doing something really egregious again, doing something way outside the bounds again, right? And and that, I think, goes to the bigger issues about Donald Trump, about his relationship to Vladimir Putin, and also about the dysfunction of the National Security Council as a decision-making uh, adjunct for the president. Whose job is it to make sure that whatever process is going on in the council gets onto the president's desk as a priority to make a decision? It's Robert O'Brien's job. So that's where I think we have to focus on O'Brien's role, not who said what to whom when. Ben. So I don't want to be the crass one while you all are talking about these very high-minded things, but I am going to uh, just mention the electoral politics of this because, you know, if you think about how much work Benghazi did for Republicans in 2016, and that was a largely fake thing. I mean, not entirely fake. There was an incident in Benghazi in which people got killed. This is a real thing. And it is a matter of gross neglect along the very predictable lines that the president either knew and didn't do anything about it or didn't know because people were afraid of his reaction to bad news about Putin. However, it shakes out. It's a very bad fact pattern, and it's a very bad fact pattern just as he is trying, kind of flailing, to portray Joe Biden as kind of weak and uh, ineffectual. And I don't know which direction this story is going to go, whether it's going to go sort of decisively in the direction of, you know, Donald Trump. Uh, heard about this and kind of covered it up or or ignored it, or whether it's going to be that the staff was so anxious about his reaction that they never brought it to his attention, or maybe that the staff really just didn't know what to do with it. Um, but there is no way that this paints a flattering portrayal of the highest levels of decision-making right in the period in which you know his polls are really slipping in a in a very dramatic way and 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 so i think you know obviously the most important aspects of this are the substantive aspects that you know the fact that we don't appear to be doing anything to protect our troops but i do think it is uh and and allied troops by the way i mean we we took seem to have taken a very long time to have let our allies know about this situation but I do think that in in the specific context which it takes place with four and a half months to an election, you know, it is yet another one of the uh, legs of the Trump strength electoral uh, stool that has uh, stands to be kicked out from from under him. Tammy, I I think I think Ben is right that there's. You know, that one reason why there's so much being made of this, frankly, is that 
there is a really strong political valence to it in the midst of an election season. Um, but I would argue that from a political perspective, it would be a mistake for congressional Democrats to, you know, uh, gear up a whole new massive Benghazi style investigation of this issue in the waning months before the campaign. They all have to run for reelection too. remember. And a lot of those who won two years ago are in tight races in swing districts where voters are not interested in the he said, she said of the Democratic Republican polarized political debate. They want to get shit done. They still have to pass appropriations for next year or a CR. There's a lot of basic business, hello, coronavirus and the economy, that American voters care a lot more about. I think for political purposes, for campaign purposes, we know what we need to know. People who believe that Trump is weirdly enthralled to Putin already believe that. This confirms their belief. People who respect the military can be um, reminded in campaign ads and messaging that Trump didn't do something to protect the military. But you don't need a big congressional investigation to do that. Just to be clear, nobody was talking about a big congressional investigation. My point was uh, that this is another one of the areas in which Donald Trump needs to project uh, strength and capability relative to Joe Biden. And just as the economy has been taken away from him, just as the coronavirus has really uh, dented the metal, this really takes the sort of strong military leader argument and, and, and body slams it. And you kind of saw that just a little bit as we're closing the loop here, too, on this sort of reliable cast of Republican, you know, normal allies who came out and expressed concerns about this, you know, the leading actor in that being Lindsey Graham. I mean, it's not dissimilar to my mind and how Republicans criticized him for being warm to the Saudis and not taking action after Jamal Khashoggi was killed or embracing the Saudis in the war with Yemen. I mean, you kind of see these, you know, red lines that certain hawkish Republicans have, um, which they, of course, immediately retreat back behind and support the president in all the other ways. But I wonder, you know, to the point about the electoral consequences, of this, I agree with Tammy that a lot of this is baked in. But I, you know, we've reported in The Times as as well that investigators are looking at this car bombing that did kill three Marines last year. And I just wonder if the, if it was more definitively linked that this bounty program that no one told the president about that he thinks is fake led to the deaths of three American service members, if that would give it kind of a, a just sort of a different quality and, and make people even who were, you know, sort of stalwart supporters of the president say, okay, this is too far even for me. I, I don't know. I merely throw that out there for consideration. We have to debate it. Um, but Susan, you want to make one last point uh, before we wrap the segment? Yeah, look, I, I sort of disagree that this is just baked in. Sort of the substance of this scandal here is that the president either incompetently wasn't aware or was aware and ignored intelligence that the Russian government had put a bounty out on American troops and that potentially American troops actually died. And he campaigns by hauling people in uniform behind him for photo ops. And that's a big deal. That's a big story. It's a big obligation for Congress to undertake oversight. And that doesn't uh, need to be sort of a sprawling investigation, um, but certainly the committees of jurisdiction, um, you know, would be committing malpractice to not uh, look into it. Um, I, I also think that there's longer term foreign policy implications here, which is that assuming we are headed into a post-Trump era, um, there's going to need to be some recalibration on what is the Republican position towards Russia. And the more information and concrete information that's available, um, you know, to sort of explain to people and illustrate to people look, this is who we're dealing with here. Um, and and, and this, this is the kind of adversary we have on our hands. To the extent that that can help shape a more informed, rational, you know, non-deranged foreign policy towards Russia moving forward, I, I continue to think that's incredibly important. Well, Vladimir Putin of Russia may feel very confident in his relationship with President Trump. But if he read a great report by Carl Bernstein and CNN this week, he would know that Trump has lots of authoritarian leaders that he likes to have really warm 
just nice phone conversations with that scared the living shit out of a lot of his aides, apparently. Um, Carl Bernstein of Watergate fame has this pretty impressively reported piece that uh, says it is covering, uh, I think we said hundreds of, did he say hundreds or thousands of phone calls uh, that President Trump has had over the years, hundreds of highly classified phone calls um, with foreign leaders uh, and with allies as well uh, that absolutely startled many of his top aides. Uh, Trump was, in their words, delusional in his calls with some foreign leaders, two sources said. Uh, Carl writes, quote, the sources said there was little evidence that the president became more skillful or competent in his telephone conversation with most heads of state over time. Rather, he continued to believe that he could either charm, jawbone, or bully almost any foreign leader into capitulating to his will and often pursued goals more attuned to his own agenda than what many of his senior advisors considered the national interest. Um, by the way, read and hear John Bolton's book and her discussion of that, where he says much the same thing. You know, Ben, the thing that stands out to me here, I guess the most, or that I found you know most salient, is that Trump seems to think he's doing a great job. Um, you know, he says in these calls that his predecessors were incompetent. He boasts about his own genius. Um, his aides seem to be standing behind him with their hair on fire all this time. And it seems to me like for people who maybe thought that Trump would grow into the job, this is a pretty compelling body of evidence that that just never happened. Uh, this covers years of calls that he had and the behavior never changes. He, he always thinks that he's killing it uh, and he's rough with our allies and warm to dictators and never seems to really learn very much. You mean there's not going to be a pivot, Shane? <laughs> yes. If you were waiting for the pivot, no, no pivot edition. With all due respect to Carl Bernstein, and this is, as you say, a very impressively reported story, it is also the least surprising story of the last four years in the sense that the Trump administration, the Trump presidency opened with this crazy set of calls with the prime minister of Australia and the the calls with the president of Mexico that didn't go right. So we've known for a long time since the beginning that he had a propensity to get on the phone and shoot from the hip uh, and shoot wildly from the hip. As you point out, John Bolton, with, a, with reference to a number of calls, makes the same uh, substantive allegation, which is that he puts his own personal uh, interests ahead of the national interests. We know or can't even tell the difference between them. We have seen call memo that reflects one example of that in the Ukraine call. And we've seen him do this in public with things like the Vladimir Putin press conference in Helsinki, where he reflects, I think we are all the aides standing in back of him during that saying, oh my God, with my hair on fire. And so the idea that there are dozens or hundreds of other calls that are exactly like this is the most predictable thing in the world. And in fact, you know, when I read this story, my, my first reaction was, what was Carl Bernstein expecting? Was he expecting that Gary Larson cartoon where the cows, you know, the car goes by, and as soon as the car goes by, the cows all take out the drinks and frolic and are dancing, and then when a car comes by, they they go moo, you know. Like, Donald Trump is Donald Trump, and he's been in that office for a long time, and when he is in that office... You know, if he gets on the phone with a foreign leader, which he does as the president does, it is going to be highly eccentric, delusional, vulgar, absurd, because uh, that's who he is. And so I, I, I think it's a really impressive story in laying out precisely what you would have predicted. I fundamentally don't disagree with with Ben's point. I think, though, there are some... There are some things we learn from this story and from the excellent reporting that went into it. We learn that there is a voice transcription software that is used to make rough transcripts of every call. We learn that 
Erdogan that there's a standing order that Erdogan can go from the White House switchboard to reach Trump wherever he is with no notice. And and that uh, Erdogan seems to have such a fine sense of Trump's schedule that uh, administration officials think the Turkish embassy here is telling Erdogan exactly when to call so he can reach Trump without his aides around. We learn that Erdogan and Trump have spoken dozens and dozens of times. And we learn actually that Trump has had probably way more phone calls with foreign leaders than any recent president, except maybe George H.W. Bush, who was notorious for talking to world leaders constantly. But it is unusual for an American president to have that frequency of phone calls, um, especially with leaders who are not particularly close American partners like the Turkish president. And so it does tell us something new, I think, about the way the Trump administration works and about, you know, what more to look for as we try to unpack the uh, corrosion of the rule of law, the grift uh, of this administration you know, we have a lot more evidence now for the notion that Erdogan is constantly asking Trump to intervene in policy matters on his behalf. And then finally, I think the thing we learn is that Bernstein doing this reporting over the last four months, he says in the article, clearly got corroboration from former senior officials who are not named as sources in the story, but boy, it sure smells like Mattis, Tillerson, Kelly, uh, McMaster, all these guys talked to Bernstein. And frankly, knowing what a good reporter Bernstein is, that wouldn't surprise me at all. Yeah. So look, I'm I'm also sort of of a mind of no, duh. What did anybody, you know, what did people think was happening? Um, you know, that said, I do think that sort of the lesson of the home stretch of the Trump presidency is it's even worse than it looks. It's so much worse than it looks. And so even though we feel like, well, there's all these leaks, it's all out in the open. Obviously, he's so incompetent. Obviously, he's a threat to national security. You know, these new revelations that just lay out the substance of the damage and and sort of uh, obliterate any sense of, oh, well, most foreign policy is proceeding without him and things really are sort of normal. And yes, he interjects here and there. You know, just the havoc that he's being wrecked every single day in ways that the American public uh, still doesn't fully know. Um, and so I think what's interesting or sort of the, the interesting takeaway from this story is the work that is going to have to be undertaken as of January 20th, 2021, assuming there is a new administration. And you know, we we think right now about sort of all the focus on Joe Biden's, uh, you know, vice presidential pick is really focused on electoral politics, right? Who's going to help him get elected? You know, Biden's choice for vice president and choice for cabinet secretaries and the secretary of state are going to be some of the most consequential choices potentially in American history, because these are not people that are walking in on day one to sort of preserve the status quo. These are people who have to undertake an enormous restoration project. And I, I so I do think we need to sort of um, start thinking about sort of, you know, starting with a vice president and moving towards November, sort of more specifics of the team of, God, who is going to possibly be up to this task? And, and what does national security and foreign policy look like in January? You know, is this a period in which we really expect the new administration, uh, you know, to, to explain everything that's happened, right? To, to be far more public. You know, there's sort of this tradition of, of kind of not telling the prior administration's secrets. Um, you know, does the Biden administration, if they, if they win, you know, should they come in and sort of say, all right, this is, this, these are the, you know, agreements Trump made. Here's what happened behind the scenes. You know, we want to give a full accounting to the American public. And here's how we're go here's what we're doing moving forward. Um, you know, here are the agreements we're not abiding by. You know, here's our new understanding. You know, I do think that, you know, obviously we're already in uncharted waters right now, um, you know, but but I, I think it's time to, to start thinking, especially to the extent that Biden has such a strong electoral lead about like we're going to be in uncharted 
waters, the next president is going to be in uncharted waters here too. And and just thinking about how do we even begin to understand the damage that's been done, you know, as a starting point of all right, how the hell are we going to fix it? Yeah, just a thought on that too. I, mean, I, I think that there's going to be no shortage of people on the Biden team should he win who will be, you know, they'll be stumbling over themselves to serve in senior positions in the administration. And you even already hear about people who are basically, you know, on the short list for some of these positions. But to Susan's point, I think, you know, politically speaking, Biden almost has to start some of that job early, it seems to me. I mean, so far, his campaign has largely consisted of sitting back week after week and watching Donald Trump self-immolate. And and the poll numbers are a horror show for the president. Um, but nobody would be so arrogant or stupid or ignorant of recent history to say that, you know, Joe Biden has it in the bag. And I think that, you know, in light of some, you know, a story like this one, where you have the president showing levels of ignorance or a cavalier attitude towards allies, et cetera, you know, it's not probably enough for Biden just to sit back and say, you know, Trump is a dope or he's rude, you know, to Angela Merkel. I think he has to affirmatively articulate some kind of, and here's what I would do differently, because there are a lot of people, frankly, that I think probably admire the way that Donald Trump talks to these people or really just don't think that it amounts to very much. Yeah, I I actually really disagree with that. I okay. think, um, first of all, and, and and for those who uh, watch in lieu of fun, uh, you may have saw Tim seen Tim Miller make this point on the show yesterday. But when when your opponent is engaged in a sort of slow motion seppuku, the first rule is don't <laughs> interfere and. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and don't take the knife out of his hands. What are you doing? Don't get out of your basement. Don't, right. you know, I know like, this is Tim's theory, right? Yeah. Every day that Joe Biden spends in that basement and says something wise and presidential sounding and Trump does this sort of thing. Right. And Trump, they can't figure out, was he briefed? Which foreign leader did he get on the phone with? And you know, and praise how many times did he have phone sex with Erdogan, you know, um, you know, like when they are doing this, you don't interrupt. And Biden is mistake prone himself. And I mean, not in the way that Trump is, um, but certainly not in the way that you, if you're, if you're running his campaign, you don't have a certain knot in your stomach every time there's an unscripted moment. And so this is a situation where the bad news is is diluvian for the other side and so just stay out of the way and I think I think he will ride this as far as he can and just be you know be the generic democrat to as many people as possible well, we shall see. One thing that Joe Biden is undoubtedly going to have to contend with, uh, both in the campaign and should he be elected next president, is, of course, the coronavirus, uh, which shockingly at times seems to recede into sort of like a, you know, below the fold story some days. Uh, but we have uh, another reminder uh, this week of many. Uh, that the virus continues to be with us. There was a very interesting story uh, in the Federal News Network, actually, uh, that faced with a pandemic-related budget shortfall, employees at the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services are beginning to receive their furlough notices ahead of possible administrative actions in early August. Uh, they report that about 13,400 USCIS employees are going to receive notice that um, <clears throat> they will be furloughed beginning August 3rd. Uh, Tammy, this was inevitable in some respects for this agency, which is what's called a fee-for-service agency, which means they essentially pay for their own operations through the fees they collect. Um, but there's practically no immigration happening right now, so there's not much work the agency can actually do, hence the budget shortfalls. So, you know, the coronavirus clearly hasn't stopped spreading. Do you think that uh, the federal workforce is about to be its next victim? I I think it's possible. And obviously, these fee-for-service agencies like USCIS or the Postal Service or the Passport Agency are the ones that are going to feel the pinch of declining economic activity across the country um, quicker than those parts of the federal government that are funded by your tax dollars. 
Um, but USCIS, I think, is in a particular bind because instead of, you know, just being able to go to Congress and say, well, hey, we need an emergency appropriation, this agency has been so thoroughly politicized by the Trump administration as a centerpiece of it's of the administration's anti-immigrant stance um, and hardline on on refugees and asylum cases and so on. And Congress is therefore scrutinizing it very carefully and is unhappy about the way it's spent other appropriated funds. And so there's no emergency money forthcoming. I also think it's really interesting and, you know, kudos to the to the Washington Post um, for a story on this incipient furlough that put this in context. But there was a really telling quote in the Post story from a USCIS unnamed official who said, you know, what has been fueling our business revenue was new people coming in. It was a well-oiled machine. But now the supply chain is broken and USCIS cannot expect to run its business as normal. In other words, if you don't let immigrants come to the country, if you cancel H-1B visas like the president is now trying to do, if you don't want people to become new citizens so that they can vote in the November election, and so you don't agree to allow citizenship ceremonies during coronavirus to take place remotely, well, then USCIS can't collect fees and it can't make money and it goes out of business. And maybe for the Trump administration, that's just fine. Like maybe the crippling of this particular federal agency is of a piece with the administration's broader agenda. And and I think that's that's what's so horrible here is that you can see, you know, part of this is just what's happening to the federal government. But part of this is, you know, the old Steve Bannon uh, argument or ideology from the very beginning of the Trump administration of sort of, you know, rip out the guts of the administrative state. That's what's going on here. Yeah, no, I think Tammy has put her finger on it in the sense that this really does smack of, you know, Stephen Miller policy opportunism during coronavirus of, you know, look, this administration uh, talks a lot about illegal immigration. Um, they clearly want to be cutting legal immigration as well. And effectively defunding USCIS is, is a good way to sort of bring that to a halt. And Ordinarily, you would have an administration, either Republicans or Democrats, that would be lobbying the Hill on behalf of its agency, right? Saying, hey, you need to fund this. We need to keep faith with federal workers. We need to, uh, you know, uh, have a workforce ready to come back. Um, and whenever you have an administration that, uh, you know, sort of plays political favorites, uh, you, you get in really, really terrible situations like this. Um, you know, I also think it's a little bit of part of the theme of um, apparently the United States has just kind of given up. Right. So other countries are aggressively battling this disease. They are getting the pandemic under control. They aren't furloughing federal workers for maybe 30, maybe 90, maybe more days than that, because they envision bringing people back to work. And everywhere we turn, whether it's federal agencies or, uh, you know, public schools or, or other parts of sort of reopening, we have we we appear you know obviously we have a highly politicized sort of debate of uh, you know should we be, be be reopening for economic purposes but what's missing is sort of any attempt whatsoever at least on the part of the federal government to actually fight this virus I mean we, we've really stopped talking about it and there's this weird sort of fatalism in the way. Even Congress, even the public has now started to talk about their expectations of the fall. And um, it's it's uh, maybe not surprising, but I, I think it's really pretty disheartening to see this already in July. Yeah, to Susan's point about giving up, it does seem that the White House has given up and kind of left Anthony Fauci and the CDC to their own devices and trying to jawbone the public. But it seems to me that a number of governors are kind of giving up too. I mean, as I read through the daily coronavirus coverage in major newspapers, what I'm seeing now are way local, you know, mayors um, and city councils taking initiatives 
And of course, they are the ones with a lot of regulatory power over restaurants and things like that. And so in a way, it makes sense. But at the same time, like we have to go all the way to the local level to find the necessary degree of leadership where the political cost of doing something unpopular is lower relative to the the public benefit of, you know, getting this virus under control at the state level, that cost benefit doesn't seem to work well enough. And at the federal level, clearly not. Yeah. And it's also a reminder, isn't it, that, you know, when we think about the U.S. response to the coronavirus, I mean, there, there's a role for the federal government to play, obviously. And it, I think there's been ample evidence that it failed in many respects of that. But you're talking essentially about 50 different responses through state health agencies and then at the local level to what also is, you know, clearly a, a, a virus with it is sort of behaving in an almost regional kind of way. I mean, I've been struck in the past couple of weeks how it's very clearly moved if we, well, we can't say moved on from, but where the situation seems much more under control in major cities and densely populated cities, not all, but then it has really become, you know, a regional phenomena where it's sort of, as some people are saying, you know, it's kind of come for the red states now. I remember in the early parts of the pandemic talking to to people in healthcare who said, you know, it was it was it, that was inevitably going to happen, and so in a sense, we're sort of seeing that play out right now. And we've almost just sort of become—I won't say numb to it, but it, it's not—it's not hitting people in the same places that it was, which are also, frankly, the major media capitals in this country, the way it was in the first couple of months. But God, what a reminder that this—you know. The way we do healthcare response and public health in this country, it's it's not centralized, right? I mean, it's not Italy, it's not Germany, it's not England. It is fifty plus all of these different jurisdictions, uh, and you know, to say nothing of what the federal role and leadership of, of that, which has clearly failed. But you know, I just I, that has been impressed upon me, I guess, as we go through this. I mean, the way that this has evolved and, and been you know, something that's calling on government at multiple levels in ways that we've just not really seen any kind of security or health challenge in, in the past century. Yeah, I also, on the point about the United States has given up, with which I agree, given up is not a sustainable position. Uh, we had 47,000 new cases yesterday, which is to say Tuesday, the number today will be something like that. And, you know, yes, it is regional, but it's a lot of different regions and they're high population regions and they're regions that did not, or at least some of them are regions that uh, did not respond well the first time around. And there's not a lot of reason for confidence in, for example, Governor DeSantis this time around either. And I think the result of that is going to be that you actually could have this time the the overflow of the exponential growth that does not get flattened by good public policy as happened in New York. It doesn't get mitigated by a whole lot of steps that people take. And at some point, things actually do spin out of control, and then it doesn't really matter if you've, you know, given up. You still have to deal with it. All right. Let's deal with some object lessons. Susan, you want to kick us off? I have an object lesson, and my object lesson is Space Force. The <laughs> Netflix show yes. that I finally got around to watching. And guys, Space Force is hilarious. Yes. And I understand every critic that has watched the show has said, like, it's not funny. It doesn't make any sense. So I acknowledge that maybe it only appeals to, like, you know, several dozen people inside the Beltway. But it is a spot on send up of Pentagon culture congressional oversight of the military careerism like it is so freaking funny and i will defend it to anybody who says otherwise including the hundreds of uh, television critics who apparently think i have no taste susan also loves john bolton's book 
<laughs> a page turner, riveting. I want. I just want to, as we like to say, foot stomp that point from you, Susan. I, I, Joe and I have been watching it. It's great. We're big Steve Carell fans, anyway. John Malkovich is just crazy funny. I think. And I, when I was talking to somebody who used to be in the military about this, who also loves the show, and I said, I think the reason why it's not landing with people, and I think you were putting your finger on it, is like it's so spot on and specific to a bureaucratic culture that is alien to almost everyone. Right. And it's like, if you never really spent time around this, this environment of in the military, uh, you know, or in, or in the Pentagon or just in a general bureaucracy, like it, it, you might not quite get the joke. And it's different in Veep, by the way, where Veep is satirizing public officials and politicians and our idea of craven you know, uh, backstabbing politics. This is like satirizing meetings of the Joint Chiefs. <laughs> it's super so specific. And it's great. It's so funny. It's so damn funny. Uh, and actually kind of tender in some spots, too. It's like, you know, it's patriotic in its way. Uh, ben, go ahead. So last week, as part of my object lesson, I, as part of my shout out to Noah Efron on the Promise podcast, I imitated Noah and I gave Rational Security listeners a prompt for their five-star review on iTunes. And I gave you the first few lines and told you, you know, go and do a review starting with those few lines. And today I checked. And Shane, can you guess how many people responded to my prompt? Zero. Zero. <laughs> I didn't know that. One person <laughs> responded with a review based on my prompt. So I just want to say shame on rational security listeners. Uh, it was a good prompt. You should have written a review. And you you let us down on this one, guys. <laughs> I am not associating myself with those remarks. <laughs> yeah, you let Ben down. Oh, Ben feels bad. Somebody go do his little, his prompt. <laughs> to his little prompt. Yeah, uh, I, I, I I worked hard on it. Oh, Ben, we know you work hard. Just do it. Come on. <laughs> Just do it. Don't make me do it. Christ. Um, my object this week uh, is actually, uh, well, I, I don't know if, he, if, it's, if the person is my object, but his performances. So uh, folks on Twitter and also watch MSNBC may know uh, David Gura, who is a correspondent and sometimes uh, host on MSNBC, uh, who, among the other smart things he's done in his life, uh, is to have uh, married uh, the wonderful Kate Brannon from Just Security, uh, who uh, I got to pal around with when we were reporters together at Foreign Policy. But David has been clearly hiding uh, his light under a bushel when it comes to his musical talents. Um, he is a pretty, as they say in the song, you play pretty good fiddle, son. Uh, he has been going up, I think, on the roof of their house or their apartment in New York and playing these just outstanding uh, songs on, I guess it's a violin, but it's it's fiddle playing. It's like, it's not bluegrass, but it kind of like, I don't know, like he should be like around a campfire in the Civil War or something like that. Do you know what I mean? And like you'd be up like dancing and clapping your hands to it. Wow, Shane, you've given this a lot of thought. Yeah, right. <laughs> He's very good. He's very good. I'm sure. They, I don't know what the genre is, but he posts. Uh, no, it's it's you know it's. Uh, I'm I painting mean, it, a picture. <laughs> you're, yeah, it, you're really it, painting it, the you know painting painting the image for the list. I'm picturing him in a jaunty hat and a blue. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, but it's really great. But you should check it out. But I want to actually start, and I tweeted this a few weeks ago. I want to start a campaign. I think that we need to get David Gura and Steve Martin together, who yes. plays Mean Banjo, and they need to do a duet. I think that would be great. Social distanced. Well, they could do it over Zoom. I mean, everyone does things over Zoom. No one meet. We're not meeting each other ever again. We're just going to live it, in Zoom. Can it be uh, dueling banjos? Well, he plays a fiddle. And yeah, Steve but, Martin play. but and but you want them to play the song from Deliverance? Yeah, exactly. So it can be like so it can be appropriately menacing. Yeah, that, that's good. I mean, those would go together pretty well, don't you think? Anyway, I think it should. They should do it. I think you should tweet it, David, and at. What is like what's Steve Martin's Twitter handle? You can it's find it. Steve Martin to go, and I know this because please let me brag about this. Yes, yes he follows. He Susan. follows me on Twitter, you guys. <gasps> You're kidding me. I'm afraid to say it because I think maybe he like doesn't know it. 
And my husband keeps being like, just send him a message saying like, I'm a huge Steve Martin fan and it will break my heart if he ever stops following me. And it is like, it is, it's the pride of my life. But now's your opportunity. You can do, you can use this to tweet at him and tell him that he and David Gore need to play together. I I, tweeted at him, but he didn't respond to me. I I don't know, Shane. I don't know if I can, if I can risk um, this precious, precious thing. David Gore is not worth it. I want to say David Gura was hosting on MSNBC in Austin, Texas, uh, when a fly landed on my nose, and it was so distracting that I actually had to say something, and I was like, okay, guys, there's a fly on my nose, and uh, we laugh about it all the time, and uh, sometimes he uh, gets MSNBC to tweet the video of it. I love it. I love it. We should put that on the show page at some time. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll, I'll put it up. Well, remember to go leave those reviews uh, per Ben's prompt. But for now, that is the end of this episode of Rational Security. Rational Security is, of course, brought to you by Lawfare. You can find our show page at lawfareblog.com. You can find banjo Rational Security banjo picks and oh, yeah. um, cat gut violin bows. Actually, of real importance to this is a serious point about what you can get at the lawfarestore.com. Oh the lawfare whiskey tumblers are now Ooh, out. At long last. As is the lawfare corkscrew and the lawfare puzzle. But I think, you know, for scotch drinkers who listen to rational security, this is the moment. I think this is the time, people. Do it. Go get them now. You can follow us, of course, on Facebook. You can find us on Twitter at RATL Security. When you go leave that nice review for us per Ben's prompt, please leave a five-star with us as well. It, that really helps us out, and we appreciate it. It helps others find the show, too. Our audio this this week was Zachary Frank of Goat Rodeo. The show is produced and edited by Jen Patia Howell. Uh, music this week is actually by Robert O'Brien, the National Security Advisor, who wrote this really catchy song about Russian bounty hunters, and I'm going to sing a part for you now, right? You ready? So you yeah. put your fingers in your ears and go, la, 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 la. <laughs> Very good, Shane. Yeah, and Sophia, yeah, just sort of like vamps in the background, just trying to get through it. On behalf of my good friends, Tamara Kaufman-Wittis, Ben Wittis, and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris. We will talk to you next week. Bye-bye. 